You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. In the 90s, the U.S. government spent several million dollars to educate youth on the dangers of drug use through a program called D.A.R.E. So let's check in on that. Was it money well spent? Hey, Pepsi, where's my jet? The amazing story of John Leonard versus Pepsi. We're all familiar with the game of American football. You try to take the ball and you violently try to get it in the opponent's end zone. So about how long have we actually been playing games like this? We'll go back to medieval England and explore one. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, both you and I are children of the 90s. We grew up and went to elementary school in the 90s. And I'm sure that you experienced what I experienced in that during that time, the schools pushed a program called D.A.R.E. that was meant to sort of educate you about drug use. And I think any time I've ever talked to someone who grew up during that era, they have some sort of a D.A.R.E. story. So do you have a D.A.R.E. story? Well, D.A.R.E. is one of those things that like as you age, it became funny. Uh, and so, yeah. because it was a shared experience <laughs> for all of us. And so I had a band in high school. We would wear dare shirts when we would play that we got from Goodwill. <laughs> and we just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And people thought it was cool. Like, oh man, those guys are in dare shirts. Like we had red ones, black ones. I have a core memory of, uh, the police officer who was conducting our dare, uh, curriculum took us outside and for some reason i don't remember what the point of the lesson was but he had us shoot toilet paper rolls into the basketball hoops like they were basketballs (laughs) and i have no clue what the lesson was about but i just remember that act and i remember going home and my parents being like what does shooting toilet paper in a basketball hoop have to do with drug you know i just forget about he went he went home and told his wife hey here's what i had the kids do and she's like huh so yeah dave so we're going to explore the dare program today and kind of ask you know what where is it? Uh, was the money on it well spent? Did it actually work? To do that, we got to go back a little bit to kind of set some context. So the fight against drugs, in terms of at least thinking about schools from the level of the federal government, really kicked off during the 1980s, during the Reagan administration. And in the years before, the infamous war on drugs had led to many more problems and solutions to deal with the growing drug problem in America. So the D.A.R.E., which stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program, was born in 1984, really out of the Los Angeles School District, and started when research conducted on the Los Angeles School District revealed, one, that attacking the demand side of the problem would have more long-term success than attacking the supply side of the problem. But two, fifth and sixth grade children oftentimes had a much more sophisticated understanding of drugs than their teachers did, 
And so the program seems to be the first time someone said, you know, hey, maybe we should teach kids not to want to try drugs in the first place rather than constantly putting out the expense of fires caused by drug use to fight the problem. So the D.A.R.E. program was born, a 17-week program in which a police officer taught a 45-minute to one-hour weekly training for students grades 5 through 9 and taught the facts about drugs and other lessons, including a controversial one on encouraging students to report any drug use that they observe to their D.A.R.E. officers. Ah, snitches. (laughs) Right. The program is pretty much identical across the country, but as you would imagine, although the authors of the program hoped regional differences wouldn't matter, it turns out they do a lot. The Secretary of Education set aside $15 million, and inevitably people began asking the pretty important questions such as, what does D.A.R.E. actually do? And the research on the effectiveness of the program began. And the issue here, Dave, is at least at the federal level, you're thinking of a program in a very large way across the nation, whereas at the local level, there are tremendous differences from place to place on the effectiveness of such a program. Oftentimes in research, these visions aren't aligned, and while one group may want to simply justify its existence through research, another may fly under the radar because the findings don't support the conclusion that is desired. And Dave, the initial research on D.A.R.E., it was not promising. In fact, some of the first research found that the program was actually increasing certain types of substance abuse because (laughs) ironically, and this has been shown in many studies, giving people information about a behavior you want them to avoid in some cases can actually increase that behavior. And D.A.R.E., well, it did a pretty good job at least of providing information about drugs. Further studies didn't agree from there. Some showed that it was effective. Others showed that it really had no effect at all. And then in 1994, a meta-analysis study of the effectiveness of D.A.R.E. revealed that it had a very small effect on tobacco use, but virtually no impact on alcohol and drug use. Effectiveness mattered based on really the location and dare, if anything, reveals how deeply complicated issues of substance abuse are, that the problem can't just be paid off or fixed in this very simple way, and that substance abuse is a really deeply rooted problem, and it's tied to just about every other major issue in society, from education to income inequality to mental health and health care and everything in between. More modern programs to fight drug use by investing in healthcare for particularly infants like nurse visit programs or programs that invest in youth and relationship building or life skills training are much more effective long term at reducing drug use by empowering youth rather than just telling them about drugs and ignoring all the other societal problems. But Dave, to me, the D.A.R.E. program, it's a great example in the blindness that can occur at a macro level when trying to solve a problem with a funded program. Perception of a program and the reality of a program can often be very far apart, and it highlights how important of a role research plays in deciding what we fund, not necessarily what looks great on a resume or sounds good, but what is truly effective is often much more complicated of a problem to solve. Let me, hold on, let me click this. Okay. Uh, And purchased. Okay. So I just purchased a, uh, for $6.98 actually. A really cool dare shirt. <laughs> what makes it really cool? Because the the logo of dare was this lion. 
Like this this really confident, strong, like beautiful name. We, we remember it differently. This is off of NovaFashion.com too. So six ninety eight. It's on sale from twenty five bucks. Jay, at some point in our lives, we've all felt like we were owed something that we never received. Uh, I mean, the truth is, sadly, that sometimes life just isn't fair. Maybe you were passed up for a promotion. Maybe something sold out before you could buy it. Whatever it is, disappointment is just a part of life. So, Jay, what's maybe a time in your life where you were perhaps disappointed and you just had to live with it? Yeah, with my job that I work, I've, I've gone through you know ups and downs, and I'm at a pretty stable place now. But there was a couple rocky years where it was really tough, and it was kind of a reality check. Like, I started my career working about an hour away from my home, and so I was constantly trying to find a school to teach in that was closer to home. Finally, was able to get a job in one. And within the first year, the way that they do education is uh, if there's the population of the school goes down or whatever, they cut staff. And so they cut the lowest amount of seniority staff first. And that was me in this case. So I got cut from that job and it was really disappointing and had to go to another school, which ended up being fine, but I was there for a year or two. And then I got back to the school I wanted to be at. And then it happened again, which was just like uh, a really devastating thing at the time. It was really disappointing, you know? Well, I appreciate the transparency and you sharing that, but just know that when I ask you those things in the future, I prefer a funny story. I like when uh, I <laughs> prefer the story of your prom date whenever she left you to go back to her boyfriend the day of prom. Those are the kinds of disappointments I like. <laughs> I've already told my only prom story on here, which is that I didn't know my senior prom date. Well, tell it again. Tell it again instead of that slop. But uh, anyway, Jay. <laughs> Jay, in the mid-1990s, a guy by the name of John Leonard, he found himself to be more than just a little disappointed. And Jay, all Leonard wanted was what he felt he had won, what he felt he was owed. Leonard had played by the rules, collected enough points, and now it was time to cash it in. So why was Pepsi refusing to pay up? Oh, and it's worth mentioning the prize before we get too far that Leonard felt he had won. Jay, Leonard thought he had won a military-grade airplane. Yeah, of course. (laughs) What else? Jay, in 1996, a then 21-year-old John Leonard insisted that he had earned enough Pepsi points in the soft drink company's current marketing campaign to receive what he had assumed was the top prize, a U.S. military-grade aircraft worth nearly $35 million. It's worth saying out loud, Pepsi and its eternal rival Coke have been fighting for customers' attention for decades. Most of the time, it's a simple ad campaign in support of the product or a simple event tie-in. But sometimes these attempts at taking over the soda market, well, they backfire. Examples include, but are not limited to, things like the 1985 legendary release of New Coke, a new Coca-Cola recipe that was claimed to be the preferred choice of customers over Pepsi in blind taste tests. When it hit store shelves, though, Jay, it bombed. Nobody wanted new Coke. They wanted old Coke. Another example is the 1992 Pepsi campaign in the Philippines that ended in financial disaster when the winning numbers appeared on way too many bottle caps. The prize pool went from the original $2 million to over $10 million. And then there's the 1996 Pepsi Points for Pepsi Stuff campaign. Drink enough Pepsi, collect enough points, and you could win a shirt, 
some sunglasses, a beach towel, or as one television spot suggested, a military aircraft. According to Mental Floss, the Harrier Jet, a machine that had been used in the early 1990s in Operation Desert Storm, was remarkable for its ability to take off and land vertically. Jay, in short, it was a true war machine with unreal capabilities. In one Pepsi Point commercial, a student was seen climbing out of the jet in front of his school. Sure beats the bus, he says. Followed by a caption saying that 7 million Pepsi points were needed for the jet. A beyond unreasonable amount of points for a beyond unreasonable prize. The problem, though, Jay, is that it seemed completely too reasonable for John Leonard. Upon seeing the commercial toward the beginning of its run, Leonard started to do the math. Accumulating that many points would mean consuming 16,800,000 cans of Pepsi. Leonard determined it would cost millions of dollars to get that many cans, and so he did what any reasonable person would do. Jay, he developed a business plan to get investors. Surprisingly, not having any takers on that plan, Leonard then discovered a loophole in the system. Pepsi points, it turned out, could be purchased for just 10 cents per point. His jet wouldn't cost millions of dollars. Instead, it would cost just $700,000, a.k.a. a steal for a piece of military equipment. Revamping the business plan, Leonard found five real investors, five real people, to back this version of the plan. He collected the money and mailed the check to Pepsi. Then he waited. What he received back, Jay, was three free cases of Pepsi, the return check, and a note explaining that the ad was, in fact, a joke. But there's someone that it wasn't a joke to, Jay. Yeah, you guessed it. Leonard. And so continuing with his run of doing what any reasonable person would do, Leonard lawyered up and took Pepsi yeah. to court. Of course, reasonable. Very reasonable. Hey, of course. And surprise, <laughs> surprise, Jay, Pepsi would eventually win. I didn't want any publicity on this, Leonard would tell the Seattle Times. They brought the public light on this. My sole intention was to get the plane. I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm not looking for a settlement. I just want a plane. <laughs> and Jay, as fun as it would have been for Leonard to get a plane, another group that didn't like the joke was the U.S. Department of Defense. The department explained that just even modifying the plane to not be a killing machine would be expensive in its own right. And oh yeah, it used about 11 gallons of fuel per minute. So Leonard would need another round of investors just to fly it for 10 to 15 minutes. Well, I just love this man's commitment to the bit to invest, to lawyer up, and then to go public uh, all in the name of just justice in general. But yeah. Uh, I feel like warplane. Uh, last night I went back and checked, and it is true. Uh, there is a documentary on Netflix right now called Pepsi Where's My Jet. And I had yeah. no clue you were going to do this segment. And I was looking for something to watch last night and saw that and was like, I wonder what that's about. I'm going to circle back to that. But. Uh, now I'm definitely going to have to circle back to it. I thought you were going to say, and now, why would I watch it? You've ruined it. <laughs> no, give me the details. I want to know, know more about these investors and what they were thinking. <laughs> yeah, where are they now? <laughs> so, Dave, we are going to be talking about violent sports. And uh, in today's world, when you think that, some things come to mind like American football, maybe rugby. Uh, but we're going to go back a little further to medieval Europe to talk about a violent sport. 
But I know you yourself had a pretty grisly injury playing sports one time, didn't you? I did. I actually get injured a lot when I play sports. Um, but football, uh, growing up, I wasn't allowed to play football. And so when I got to college and my mom couldn't stop me, Joke's on you. Uh, I, I played flag football, actually, the, the wimpiest version of football. I played flag football as a class. Okay, so it's a long story. Took an extra semester of college. Why not? One of my classes, actual credit attached to it, was flag football. First day of class, first flag football game, I jump up to try to deflect a pass, come down, completely snap my ankle. So I guess the joke really is on me at the end of the day yeah, and if i remember but, it right i think like your team was mad at you for not making the play even yeah no no one cared i was hurt they were just they wanted to <laughs> insult my my defense well dave american football in general has a long and complicated history but if you go looking for its origins you'll find that the game was popularized in the usa a little over a hundred years ago and then went through an evolution into the modern nfl and college and high school sport that we see today one that is pretty obviously a cornerstone of the culture in this country but researching the origins of the game brought me to a sport hundreds of years old played in Europe during the Middle Ages called mob football, or as they called it, just simply ball. Dave, the rules of the game were actually really simple. Too simple, in fact. An unlimited number of players lined up on each side, sometimes numbering 500 or more. A pig bladder was inflated and sealed and put between them. Two goals were marked miles away from each other, sometimes as many as three miles away. And the goal simply was to get the pig bladder in the other team's goal. How? Well, however you want. Anything goes. You want to fight? Sure. You want to kick and bite? Go for it. There's no referees. There's no replay. Get the ball miles to the goal by any means necessary. Now, obviously... This resulted in several injuries and even many documented deaths. Games would oftentimes last for hours or days or even weeks. And Dave, games weren't even scheduled. They often just randomly broke out to resolve some sort of dispute between neighbors or a disagreement over land. The biggest games were reserved for religious holidays, such as around Easter time. But clearly mob football caused issues from not just the violence, but the property damage. And kings across Europe tried to outlaw the game over the years. In fact, in 1349, King Edward III of England outlawed the game, one, because people kept getting injured, but more importantly for him, since this was during the era of the bubonic plague and he kept losing soldiers, he needed potential recruits to stop getting injured playing ball and instead focus on, I don't know, archery or something. If you survive the plague, I need you on the battlefield, not fighting over a pigskin. Royals worked to add more rules to popular games of the time because of this to reduce injury and destroy property, but the game, it has never truly died. Today, in the town of Ashbourne, England, an annual game of ball is still played. Goals are established three miles apart, and thousands of players participate. There still aren't many rules either. Officially, manslaughter is not allowed, and you can't hide the ball or use any motor vehicle. And due to this, the town just turns into full-on chaos for basically two straight days. 
But this annual game has the royal seal of approval, too. In fact, in 1928, the Prince of Wales threw the ball out to kick off the game. And then Prince Charles actually did the same in 2003. And ever since, the game has been endorsed by royalty rather than targeted by it. People in town take the game very seriously. It has only been canceled a couple times throughout all of history, once in 2020 due to COVID, obviously. Yeah, wh- why cancel it over COVID? You're playing with, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other issues going on. <laughs> but the connection to the past is really interesting here. And although the games to move a ball to a goal really exist across the entire world in various cultures from Mesoamerica to Asia... This one to me is just the most hilarious. You know, I usually try to find like a funny little thing that ties in with what you're doing. And so as you were talking about it, I thought, well, this is just so absurd and nuts. This is a bad hobby. Like I'm going to look up what are some other bad hobbies. And I just stopped at one. Okay. Because the, the people of Reddit, our good friends on Reddit, have come up with this collection of the world's worst hobbies. Number one is stalking celebrities. I'm not even <laughs> continuing from there. I don't know if I'd hardly call that a hobby as much as just a crime. Like my hobby can't, my hobby can't be like armed robbery, you know, like it's a crime. Number two, time travel. I'm just going to go ahead and, and delete this. <laughs> Close this page out. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. See you next week. Oh, wait. Is the lion like a cartoon lion? Yeah, he's a cartoon lion. There's no way this lion uses drugs. I'll tell you that. He looks too healthy. (laughs)